And if you're lucky enough to come into nursing with a, a little bit of uh, knowledge of healthcare on the other side of the bed, as, as I had been both a patient and then a family member had been in the hospital, and I had already ideas about how important it was to engage with people. So it was not a difficult transition. I think it's, it's a very natural one, actually. What's the experience like when a nurse is also an award-winning actress, filmmaker, successful author, and sought-after consultant? Let's talk all about it with Dr. Candy Campbell right here on episode 422 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is about you and your personal professional development, your career, and the healthcare system in the bigger picture. And I'm always here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of nursing, healthcare, medicine, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And guess what? You can now get CEUs from listening to nursing podcasts at rnegade.pro, R-N-E-G-A-D-E.pro. Find me or any other content creator on that platform. Uh, join, uh, select us, select our programs, listen, take a little post quiz and get CEs for listening because you're listening anyway, so you might as well do so. And if you want to help other people find me and the show, leave a rating and review on Apple, Google, Amazon, or Spotify, or just share the show from any app where you happen to be listening. And if you want to become a patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. That's patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith if you'd like to support the show in that way. Anyway, the show notes will be in any app where you happen to be listening. They'll also be at nursekeith.com in the drop down menu where it says podcasts. And like I said at the top of the show, we're here with my friend and colleague, Dr. Candy Campbell. We've known each other quite some time and have had opportunities to meet one another in person. And Candy, you have embodied the character and the spirit of Florence Nightingale for a long time as an actress, as an award-winning actress. Where did that impetus first come when you decided to put on a costume and actually be Florence Nightingale? Oh my goodness. That is a kind of a funny story. So once upon a time in 2010, and you might remember, uh, Keith, there we were sort of celebrating the 100th year anniversary of Miss Nightingale's death. Mm -hmm. And I do recall, I was an assistant professor then at the University of San Francisco when we had a little visit in a faculty meeting from our wonderful librarian, Claire Sharifi, shout out to Claire, who said, in honor of this auspicious year, the British Library and lots of other people on the other side of the pond had digitized Miss Nightingale's 200 books and articles and over 10,000 of her letters. And she said, you know, we've 
we've got them free. You don't have to pay for them. Come on over to the library and I'll show you how to get them. And so as it turned out, I was on campus and, of course, commuting to uh, Walnut Creek where I lived in the suburbs. And it's, at le- oh boy, you know, city traffic is terrible. Mm-hmm. So I sort of made it a practice for the next three years. It took me to open up the computer and log into these wonderful works that I had no idea about. And um, I just sort of binge read about, well, from all of her stuff. And, you know, as as a nurse and as an academic, I thought after the first, oh, I don't know, a couple of weeks, I thought, I got to start making notes on this because this is... This, this is so much. I had no idea there was so much. And so I I took a piece of paper and I started jotting down sort of qualitative themes, you know, categories. And I came up with six of them. And then I was at a um, at, at the end of that third year and I was sort of in my own mind celebrating about what a cool person this was. And I was just, I was just really enamored of her, wishing that someday I could meet her and sorry that I couldn't meet her, you know, in this life. And uh, I was going on and on about this person at a holiday party at one of our National Speakers Association holiday parties. And one of my friends, uh, a mentor actually to me, an internationally known speaker named Barry Wishner, he was overhearing me waxing poetic about Miss Nightingale. And he said, um, let me just get this straight. You're a nurse and an actor and you've had two solo shows. Why isn't this your third one? And I said, oh, no, I don't, you know, I really only, I had a reason to do the other two shows. I don't have a reason to do this. And besides, you know, I, it, it was good to do those other shows, but you know, I don't make a lot of money and it's a, what's well, a really a lot of work. And he said, Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I get that. But um, let me ask you another question. What, what would, what would have to happen to change your mind? And I said, Oh, Barry, God himself would have to call me and <laughs> tell me, you know, do you have to tell me? So 9.30 the next morning, I pick up the phone and I hear, this is God. You should do that, Joe. <laughs> so that, that was, was Barry, I assume. Yeah, that was him. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I he dedicated like a, the book. Oh, he sounds like a true mentor. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, he is. <laughs> and you were going to say you dedicated the book? I dedicated the book, Channeling Florence Nightingale, Integrity, Insight, and Innovation to him because he was like a dog with a bone. He just, he, every time I saw him, how's the show coming? And then I thought, oh, gee whiz, I guess I got a hire director. I got to figure this thing out. It took a year. And here's another funny thing. I was talking to somebody about it at church and uh, one of the pastors happened, I w- went to a big church, and one of the pastors happened to hear about it. And he said, oh, hey, I hear you're here. You're doing something about Florence Nightingale. She was a great lady and a great, you know, social reformer and all this. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, 
So when is it going to be done? And I said, I don't know. I just started. This was like in January. And he said, well, I have an idea. Why don't we book you for December? (laughs) Then I had to do it. So that was that was a long time ago. Yeah. And I remember on my first podcast, RNFM Radio, with Anna Morrison and Kevin Ross, we actually had you as Florence on the show. And you actually took questions from us in the audience and responded in her voice. And it was really fantastic. Do you remember (laughs) that? I sure do. Yeah. Um, And so it really took off and you've performed it, you know, in many, many different settings. And you are an accomplished actress. Prior to that, obviously, you said you had two solo shows before. But as we record this now, at the end of March 2023, you just performed off-Broadway as Florence. So what was that like? Oh, my goodness. That was sort of the embodiment of a dream. I. I really, when I started the show, people would tell me. Now, mostly, I I performed it at nurse association and conferences and such and healthcare organizations. And and the common comment that I heard was, oh, my gosh, this should be on Broadway. And I thought, oh, that's so sweet of you to say. Um, But, you know, what are the chances? So it you know, I was blown away. It it actually happened and and it was a great experience and um, it happened. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it sounds like from our conversations before we pressed record that you're going to take the show on tour. So what, what might that look like? Well, that is something that I can tell your listeners that depending upon where they are, if they um, would like to get a hold of me because they would like to bring this show to their city. Uh, one of the ways that we're doing it, there's two two common ways that has been. It's either with a, a conference and or a healthcare organization and or a, um, as a fundraiser for a university school of nursing, something like that. And then of course, uh, not as often, but several times now we've we've done this in in a public uh, performance. Gosh, the last one was in November in uh, not far from where I'm living now in Maryland at uh, a college, and it was uh, it wasn't even a weekend night. It was a Wednesday night, and they got well, they had a house of three hundred. It was pretty near full. So I was really surprised that I'm always surprised when the general public turns out for this show that I kind of imagined only nurses would be interested in. But she did so many things. She has a a great appeal. She does. That's right. And I just want to ask, let's go back in the Wayback Machine for a minute. So before 2010, so you were an actress before you became a nurse, or did you become a nurse first and then did acting come after? My initial degree is in theater and acting. Yeah. In theater and acting. Yeah. And I got called to nursing. 
<laughs> yeah. So you were already an actress, you were a comedian, and nursing came along. And what was that what was that like to have this identity as an actress? Like that was your first major and theater and drama, you know, were part of your world. And that's that's leagues away from nursing and healthcare. So was that a big identity shift for you? Or did you create more or less a bifurcated career at that point and kind of pursue both at the same time? I gave up acting for a long time when I first became a nurse. And I actually gave it up uh, because I was raising little kids and um, uh, my husband at, of the time was not wanting me to go on stage. So, you know, I became a painter and, you know, that's how my creative muse sort of came out. And then what happened was when I was divorced in 1992 and moved from the L.A. area up into the San Francisco area, uh, pretty quickly, I got the idea that I I just didn't I, I didn't want to be sad uh, anymore. You know, a few months of just you know mourning the loss of uh, a long term relationship like that. I just wanted to laugh again, and that's how I got into stand up comedy, and then improv, and had my own improv company, and right around that time, almost immediately, because I sort of started meeting people, you know, while I was certainly a nurse full time, but I was started to meet people in the area and was uh, taken up by a commercial uh, agent right away. So I did a lot of on the side acting gigs in every media you can imagine. Um, it took me a while to get back on stage until my last child sort of graduated high school and but in the middle of of that you know i think i think we have something in common i wanted to mention about your podcast that as nurses we deal with all sorts of human trauma and we also are thick in the middle of the healthcare system and we can see things especially if we've had any sort of a life before we got into healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had been a flight attendant with uh, Pan Am long ago, and it was great training on teamwork and uh, getting along with lots of other people. And, and I could see in healthcare, there could be a lot of improvements that I, I just wished that they would do. And so that sort of created the first and then the second show. Um, and then your question about the identity crisis here, that is that is true that in a way, I looked at nursing as as another role, not a phony role, but in in the purest terms of acting. and people say, well, is that isn't that just a liar's club, you know? And I, I take offense at that because um in the sort of training that I did, uh Meisner is the the training method that I uh particularly like because he said the truth of acting is a reality of doing. And 
you know, as an educator, whether I was in the hospital or, or coming in from the university, I always told my students that there was quite a bit of a parallel track between my understanding of nursing and and acting. And I'll tell you why. Because in both cases, you know how it is when when you come in, it doesn't matter if you're in long-term care or acute care. When you come on to do your work, you get a kind of a, whether it's an SBAR or a quick history or a history, but it should hopefully include the psychosocial aspect of this patient. And so that I used to tell my students, when you walk into that room, it's kind of like going into the proscenium arch. You know, life is improv. You walk in, the patient knows well why they're there most times. Uh, You know what you're tasked to do in there, but you have no idea who else is going to be in there. You don't know what sort of conversations are going to evolve in there. You don't know what they know about why they're there. There's so many unknowns and you really have to be sensitive. And if you're lucky enough to come into nursing with a a little bit of uh, knowledge of healthcare on the other side of the bed, as, as I had been both a patient and then a family member had been in the hospital and I had already ideas about how important it was to engage with people. So it was not a difficult transition. I think it's, it's a very natural one, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've thought, and I think I've probably written about this before, talked about it, how the word hospital and the word hospitality come from the same Greek root, I'm sure. So there's a hospitality aspect to especially acute care, right? Because people come and they live at the hospital for a while and we're taking care of them. And I just flashed on, you know, this, this whole notion in the world of Disney where people who work in Disney parks are considered, um, cast members right so they're they're kind of always on right and not that you know we want to disneyfy healthcare that's another conversation however that whole notion of of hospitality and how we are playing a part to some extent you know we're playing the part of the nurse and we're playing the part of the caregiver and nurturer and they're playing the part of the patient and the concerned family <laughs> so i just i'm going on a little tangent here but but i understand that and nursing especially and well all forms of medicine mostly involve a lot of turning on a dime because you just said it you just said you never know what's going to happen or who's going to walk through the door and i believe that's kind of a nice segue to the idea of medical improv and what you've been involved in for quite some time. And you also have a new book coming out about medical improv. So before we take a break, first tell us what medical improv is, and then we can build on it from there. Well, what you're calling medical improv is a subset of improv. And as I mentioned in the early 90s, I was. Um, 
I was lucky enough to have my own improv company there in the San Francisco area. Four of us uh, stand-up comedians uh, who had been friends started this this company, and it certainly wasn't what we would call medical improv. It's just that after 1995, when I first started facilitating improv workshops with Silicon Valley businesses, I realized, good heavens, this sort of training would be so helpful and maybe prevent patient errors in healthcare. This is what we should be doing. And I just got the door slammed on me left and right because they said, oh, there's no evidence that this is appropriate for healthcare. So that is really why I went ahead and, well, not why I went ahead with it, but what I chose to do when I did do my doctoral work over there at Stanford um, with an interprofessional group, uh, because I felt it was so important to go ahead and do the what became a mixed method and then a qualitative longitudinal study with this group of, of people and to try and track if it made a difference. And I like to say it's kind of like you can't unring a bell, you know? Once you have your mind opened up to the, well, there's 12 principles that I've outlined in my years of understanding this. And so the medical improv part is uh, what some people have called it when some of the physicians uh, got involved. And um, so now thanks to Alden Alda and some other people who had quite a big big push on this uh, it is something that it's still a slow train to take off but it is taking off and more and more people are are writing about it to my knowledge I'm the first one who did a doctoral work on it but it's very applicable in healthcare the second book is not necessarily for healthcare. It could be used in healthcare. It's earmarking, or let's say it's 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 more pointed towards the leader of business or association or any kind of leader. Certainly, could be healthcare as well. And uh, so the focus is is a little bit broader on this one. And I and the reason for that. Just before the pandemic, this is, and I earmarked four books that I would like to write. The first most important to me was the one improv to improve healthcare. And they have a lot of similarities, but they are different. And um, that's what I wanted to tell you. Mm -hmm. Well, when we come back from the break, I'd like to talk a little bit more about this, this improv world and what's happening out there in the medical spheres and the nursing spheres using improv. And I'd like to talk about some of your other books and also about you as a, just as a person, as a nurse, and this really wonderful, wild, interesting 
singular trajectory you've been traveling all these years. So when we come back for the second half of episode 422, we'll be here again with Dr. Candy Campbell, who's not with us here as Florence Nightingale, unfortunately today, but we're going to dig a little bit more into her history and so much more. So we'll be right back. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my good friend and colleague, Dr. Candy Campbell. And Candy, prior to the break, we were discussing medical improv and you were saying how this has been a slow train in terms of medical improv taking off. And there's your book. There's the work by our mutual friend, Beth Boynton, who lives in Maine. Um, shout out to Beth Boynton. And so there are certain people out there who have embraced this as a very efficacious um, um, form of work that can that can really improve relationships and communication and teamwork and leadership in nursing and healthcare and medicine. And you mentioned Alan Alda, and I listened to his podcast, Clear and Vivid, avidly. And we know that he's worked on the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, and he's used improv in these sorts of milieus before. So um, shout out to Alan Alda, not that he listens to my show. But you mentioned a few minutes ago, prior to the break, the 12 principles. And are these your 12 principles regarding improv? They are based on all the years that I was a student of improv and then teaching it and realized that there wasn't, there's one book that outlines maybe four or five of them, I think, called Improv Wisdom. Um, but I sort of shredded it out a little bit more based on how I've been teaching it. And so, it's a very fluid study because just like any other art form, there are certain, like if you, you know, a lot of people know how to play a musical instrument. And if you know how to, you know, you know where the notes are on the piano, let's say. And if you diddle around enough, you might get to understand how to play by ear or maybe if you have a good ear and the opportunity and maybe some mentors, you might understand what it means to do some improv jazz or other sorts of musical compositions, if you will, whether they're written or not written. And, and in the annals of art, improv sort of sprang up and there are certain uh, persons who really helped push it forward Keith Johnstone is is a notable and uh and so therefore because life is improv and improv training is rather fluid and improv games get renamed by just about everybody who does them and there's no limit to how many you could do then I, it was it was a bit of a challenge when i was first asked to please come to this first Silicon Valley startup with some, they were software engineers. And um, 
it was all based on a performance that this person who was running this company had seen uh, my improv company. And I, as it turned out of the four of us, I was the only one who had a teaching background and, and I could figure out how to do, how to develop a curriculum. <clears throat> I didn't have a lot of time to do it, but again, I had an idea in my head that teaching improv for performance is going to be very much the same, but different. And because I think that I understood those differences, I was able to meld it as as more of a teaching for non-performance. Um, because even, even for performing, we always say we're not doing this for the laugh, but you see that it becomes that. And the whole the whole idea behind theater sports is to get the audience involved and then to allow them to vote which is funnier or which they liked better. It's really sort of competition because it's it's fun that way and it's meant as a silly, fun thing. Mm -hmm. But when we work with people who are trying to make lifestyle changes and, as you mentioned, to deepen relationships and get some insight on how to how our choices, how our conscious choices form our behaviors and then how that relates to, in our world, patient care, mm -hmm. well, then we have to we have to take it slower. And I think tease out and the debriefings are, are quite a bit more um, common. And as opposed to in performance training, we might not have a debriefing after every exercise. But I consciously tried to do that with uh, training teams and, and other people um, for organizational development. Mm -hmm. Purposes. And what are some of the core principles that underlie this kind of work? The first one is accept all offers. And that's the yes and versus mm -hmm. yes but principle. Mm -hmm. uh, another one is to risk being imperfect, really tough in healthcare. Mm hmm. We don't want to admit any mistakes or faux pas or heaven knows if we're imperfect, we might kill somebody, you know, and the way I get around that when we're doing the trainings is to remind people that whether you're, you're an artist, a dancer, or whether you're a nurse, you, you still practice discrete skills. And this is exercise. The, this is like being in the gym. This is practice. Nobody's going to die here. And I don't think anybody, there won't be any blood, mm -hmm. you know, might have some pretend deaths and some pretend blood, but not usually. Um, but you never know. Improv is improv. Mm -hmm. um, we also say avoid yes, no questions because that stalls action and stalls conversation. Mm-hmm. So just imagine you're in a meeting, you're a nurse, and you're with the nurse practitioner and the hospitalist and the attending, and maybe the social worker and the case manager, and you're discussing a patient case. And 
someone makes an offer of something in terms of a differential diagnosis or something they think is going on with the patient and the family. And you can either say yes, and perhaps we should consider X, Y, or Z. Or you say something like, no, but, or yes, but. So you're sort of shutting down that person's idea and inserting your idea. So I can see where in improv, if you just start with that, with the yes and, that you accept all offers and you say yes and, not no but, that could really open up a different avenue of communication, say, between the nurse and the doctor or the attending and the surgeon or the case manager and the nurse, et cetera. So that, that's kind of where you're heading with this, right? That, that it, it smooths and opens communication, opens doors. Exactly. And mm-hmm. I, I like to, in those situations, I like to suggest to the students or the people that I'm working with that if you don't agree, you say, you can use your inflection and your body language about the yes and what if. The what if question is a great question to follow that up with, to mm-hmm. tease out more information to open open the conversation with all the people in that example, for instance, to, you know, sometimes we have another thing that comes into play so often in the hierarchy of healthcare is when people have different titles and different positions. It um it comes under it's it's not one of the principles necessarily, but it's it's one of the understanding that we have about human behavior that I don't think I heard in nursing school, but this was a product of Keith Johnstone. He calls it status play. And you know what I mean. If somebody mm-hmm. has the label of the MD by necessity, that buck stops there. They are the highest part of the responsibility, if you will, at that point. They're giving the orders. But before those happened, especially if we're doing some sort of interprofessional rounding or what have you, and we're really supposedly open to new ideas, then hopefully we all have the agency to speak up. And that's a really great way to get more voices heard. Mm-hmm. Because in, in medicine and healthcare, we have power differentials. And we see that similarly in many, many other industries, in the military and government, et cetera. We have power differentials. And we can feel stifled in our communications if that power differential makes it so that the nurse's voice doesn't count as much as the surgeon's voice, et cetera. And of course, this all bears out in our day-to-day work in healthcare. Most of the people listening work in healthcare in some way, so I think they can relate. So when you take part in medical improv exercises, breaks down those barriers, gives you the opportunity to talk to the doctor in a way that maybe you weren't able to in, you know, quote unquote, in real life. But maybe, just maybe when you do go back to the unit and you interact with that doctor, having done the medical improv exercises, maybe there's some different grease in the wheels of communication that weren't there before. 
So I think that could be one of the really positive outcomes of this type of work, I'm assuming. Yes, and mm-hmm. <laughs> what is really helpful is when the whole team of various stripes of titles and positions gets to go through this together. Because not only do they learn these techniques of speaking up, but relationships are formed. And we know from the studies oh, long ago of human behavior and, and uh, cognitive behavior, uh, Piaget and then the Bloom and all those people on, on how children learn and how it is true that in order to get into the the higher get to the higher point of the hierarchy of learning to where we get to be creative after we get to the evaluation part we have to feel free enough to speak up and that part of relationship building comes comes to fore when we're having fun either Mm -hmm. that or we're having a terrible remember if you're going through some sort of trauma people bond but we don't we have enough trauma in healthcare. We don't want to manufacture anymore. We want to instead make make a safe environment for us to have fun and risk being vulnerable, risk looking silly, just so that we can cement a kind of relationship that may not happen on some of these other interprofessional um exercises that sometimes people bring into the workplace. Have you ever been on one of those where, uh, and I'm not going to name names, uh, I'll just say mm-hmm. uh, a group, let's say uh, an interprofessional group is is tasked to do X, Y, or Z thing, whether it's a scavenger hunt or even just putting Legos together. The person who perceives that they have the highest rank in the hierarchy very often feels subconsciously responsible for just taking taking the lead. And what we know from our root cause analysis of problems in healthcare is that there is a time for that closed uh that well we call it open loop when when there's just one way you know i'm giving the orders and you obey because you know stand back you know we're going to shock this person you know that's that's appropriate mm-hmm. and that sort of thing but most of the time i like to say 99% of the time the the closed loop where we all have a chance if we feel so led to speak up, those sorts of facilitation of that sort of conversation doesn't come without a relationship, without a a safe relationship with another person. And how do you do that? We do it through play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. Yeah, so your, your first book, Improv to Improve Healthcare, a system for creative problem solving offers some of these exercises and explanations of the improv um, mindset, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. that can be brought to the healthcare space. And that's what you've done with many organizations. And now your newer book that's coming out is Improv to Improve Your Leadership Team, Tear Down Walls and Build Bridges. So it's bringing that, like you said, 
it could be used in healthcare, but it could be applied to to any industry, any profession, and any group, especially where you have a leader who really wants to help other leaders find the way to, I think, be enlightened. I look at that as a form of enlightened leadership. And you also have your book, Channeling Florence Nightingale, Integrity, Insight, Innovation, which is a wonderful book. And you also, I forgot until today that you have children's books. You have My Mom is a Nurse, right? And then you have My Grandma is a Nurse. And those have also been translated. And so you've had quite a bit in terms of your your writing career as well. So that must be an exciting part of your of your life and your professional career. You know, those books and the the last children's book, which is um, Good Things Come in Small Packages, I Was a Preemie, they were done a long time ago. My goodness, 2005, my mom is a nurse came out. And again, you know, just like, a lot of things that I can say in my life. I did not wake up as a kid thinking, I want to be um, a, an author. I like to write, but I just never thought that that would happen. And I didn't plan on writing children's books. It's just that, I don't know if this ever happens to you, Keith, but you hear something like what happened then, which was, uh, seemed like I was working in the NICU and seemed like all my friends were getting pregnant and, and we're having a lot of baby showers and uh, a couple of them were pregnant at the same time. And they both said they wanted children's books. And so I thought, that's it. I'll get him that book that my mom is a nurse book. And I, and I, I looked and I couldn't find it. And so then as I'm sort of going off to sleep thinking, now, let's see, I looked at this store and that store and, you know, online, I'm looking all over the place, can't find it. Does that mean I got to write it? Mm-hmm. Oh, Lord. <laughs> just, just like Barry telling you it's time for you to do the play. <laughs> I guess you get called to these different things, Candy. So you better watch out when the next one comes along. Um, well, that's, yeah, that's how I got to be a filmmaker. And believe me, I didn't, I didn't plan on that either. But I want to tell you that if your friends uh, and listeners here uh, are part of Amazon Prime, the um the award-winning film which is called micro premature babies how low can you go came through as a recommendation to me oh, <laughs> on that's my wonderful. amazon prime the other day that's great the other week actually i thought that's that was great. fun so speaking of amazon prime that's where people can find all your books i'm sure and oh, they yeah. can also go to candycampbell.com uh-huh. and then there's florence nightingale live.com so if people want to keep tabs on the tour of the florence nightingale one woman show they can keep tabs on it there and sign up for updates and find out if you're coming to their town or if they'd like to bring you to their town or organization they can contact you and you're on facebook and twitter and linkedin so we'll make sure all of that is in the show notes and candy it's been such a delight to have you here and good luck with the upcoming tour i hope we can get you to new mexico and really congratulations on the new book as well thanks 
Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. Remember, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com. Please check out candycampbell.com and florencenightingalelive.com and check out all of Candy's books on Amazon and on her website. If you need personalized holistic career coaching, please look no further than nursekeith.com. Mention the show to me by email, keith at nursekeith.com and get 10% off your first coaching package. The Nurse Keith Show is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. We're adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappiespeason is our social media ringmaster and newsletter wrangler. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by Albert Schweitzer. Success is not the key to happiness. Happiness is the key to success. If you love what you're doing, you will be successful. And Albert Schweitzer didn't say this part, but Candy Campbell is a living example of that. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the inimitable Candy Campbell saying arrivederci from Chesapeake Beach, Maryland. Thank you, Candy. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll catch you on the proverbial flip side.